we're not aiming to find the best solution in a given problem, in a given context. We're trying to find solutions that could work in that setting. And that's very different mindset, I think, from a very economistic, optimizing point of view. But that always sounds to me like a very sort of insular academic question, because we live diversity every day. And we do this by having local team members working with local academics. We work with local stakeholders. I know about behavioral science and I know about the topic that I want to work on. Welcome to a load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the galaxy with me, your host, Daniel Ross. And of course, in partnership with the wonderful BE Works, one of the very best behavioral science consultancies in the world, co-founded by Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar. BE Works is a multidisciplinary team of behavioral scientists and psychologists working on complex challenges across financial services to healthcare to sustainability, helping businesses reimagine a future in which individuals flourish and prosper. Now, if you're interested in what they're up to, you might check out their BE Curious blog on their website at beworks.com. Now, building on last week's show with Clemence at Magenta Consulting, today I'm talking to the team at Embed, the Mind Development and Behaviour Unit at the World Bank. Like Clemence and her team, Zeyna Afif, Reynos Vakis and Anna-Maria Munoz-Boudet are working on the front lines in some of the most challenging countries in the world, supporting the bank's initiatives by bringing behavioural science to governments and policymakers, challenging standard policy design, and so starting to solve the thorniest of problems in gender, inequality and poverty, among other. Today we talk about how music and magic contribute to behavioural science, project sustainability, being gritty and a growth mindset. It's a privilege to learn from their inspiring work. So let's get to it. Well, I must say that this is the first time I've had three guests at once on the show, and I'm excited and actually privileged to have such esteemed people from the World Bank joining me, all of you, by the way, who have spent between 15 and 25 years at the bank, which is admirable dedication to the fine work that you do, all of you within the poverty and equity Global Practices, Mind, Behavior, and Development Unit, otherwise known as Embed, which uses behavioral science to fight global poverty and inequality. So Zena, Anna Maria, and Rinos, welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy. It is a great pleasure to welcome you all here alongside me today. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. It's a great pleasure. Now, Zena, you're Senior Behavioral Scientist at Embed. Anna Maria, you're a social scientist by background with particular interest in gender inequality and poverty issues. And then finally, Rinos, you are lead economist in the Embed team. And I must say, I love your own LinkedIn description of yourself, which says that you combine economics, behavioral science, evaluation, magic, music, and common sense to find small and big solutions for a happier and more equal world. So now I must start here with you, Rinos. Please tell us what happens when you throw in music and magic to the more obvious mix of disciplines of economics, behavioral science and evaluation. I think what's incredible with music and magic is that the more you understand the mechanics of it, the more you realize how behavioral it is, because it's really about emotions, it's about these more, you know, automatic heuristics, it's about cooperation. In a way, the nudging, which is the distraction, which is what you need to do for magic. 
and the more I have uh, delved into my hobbies, which is, you know, magic and music, the more I realize that I have always been a, in a way, behavior scientist because this is what it's all about. But I think the most important part of that sentence is the common sense, ultimately. Absolutely. So there's a bit of sleight of hand there and maybe looking for more oblique, less obvious circumventory solutions to problems, being a little more creative. But before we dive in to some of the amazing examples of your collective work, why don't we explain what Embed does, its purpose and how it fits in to the World Bank? So Zaino, why don't you kick us off with that? Sure. So what we do is we work with bank teams and governments that the World Bank support in applying a behavioral lens to the World Bank projects and development. And what that could look like, such as doing a behavioral diagnostics to better understand what are some of the issues within a World Bank project, but as well as thinking through solutions and helping implementation as well as evaluating it. So it could be from a diagnostics all the way to an RCT and then lessons learned. And our goal is to really, at the end of the day, improve the bank projects and to be able to improve efficiency and basically get to better outcomes. As I understand it, there are nine thematic areas you focus on, so from climate and energy to financial inclusion to gender equality to health and well-being. So where are you devoting most energy now? So at this moment, we're probably focusing a lot more on the COVID response, and we are right now supporting the bank teams and government clients on, for example, addressing vaccine hesitancy and looking at ways to tackle misinformation. And another area we're working a lot on is climate change. So that is basically around behaviors around waste management, but also on topics such as improving ecotourism, as well as sustainable fisheries and other topics. Another big area of our work is is also gender, where we are looking into how to increase female labor force participation, addressing issues such as teen pregnancies, as well as ensuring that there's access to maternal needle care. Understood. And let me just try and unpack this a little further. And, you know, Rinos, feel free to come in here if you like. But let me understand who your target audience is. And it might be a mix of both. But are you then trying to make interventions with end consumers, if that's the right expression? Or are you mainly working at policy level to change behavior? How does that work? Our main counterpart is public sector employees, you know, ministries of, you know, the sector. And we work with them through our colleagues who are the experts on that area and the counterparts of those, uh, you know, the relevant authorities. So we directly work with governments. We don't work with, you know, private sector per se. And the, I guess one nuance from what Zaina was saying, you know, we've been trying to, I think, one difference from many other of the behavior science, you know, teams out there is to understand how people in poverty context and how potentially the distributional impacts of different policies are and then bring the behavior science lens to those angles. And so in addition to kind of a, you know, the standard thinking, if you want, of behavior science thinking in terms of policy design, we also have to worry about issues around, you know, kind of a, the complexities of, you know, the poverty context and the complexities of policymakers that working with their own, you know, kind of a social norms and, and systems and issues. So that makes our work many times more challenging for all sorts of ways, but also more deeply exciting and really rewarding when we actually get some good ideas out there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you are indeed working in countries that are often politically unstable. They have limited resources, weak infrastructure, maybe even they're prone to natural disasters. They're just generally unpredictable environments. Actually, Anna Maria, why don't I turn to you? 
Tell me a little then, following from what Rinos was touching on, what are the kind of buy-in and implementation challenges at play in these sorts of environments? So let me start with a caveat. I think that our environments are not different than a developed rich country. We basically have policymakers that have a specific goal and a specific objective in mind, both for themselves and for what they're doing, and a set of implementation challenges. And those, yes, it might be that the context is a little bit trickier. It might be that the funding is a little bit scarcer. It might be that the institutions are not fully set up. But at the end of the day, we have to both work with everybody for the outcome that we want, whether it is people to register for a program, whether it is children to go to school or others to happen. So implementation challenges are all of the ones that you can think of, of doing, trying to do something new in an environment where business as usual is the norm and when there are regulations and settings that you have to deal with. So take that first, you need to convince a government official that what you're talking about is not a load of BS, right? You actually have to tell them, hey, this actually is relevant. And the first reaction is always, we're already doing it. We're already communicating them. We're already communicating our beneficiaries about the program. It's like, yes, but you're communicating in the way that you think you should communicate. But if you're telling me that you're telling people, you know that the returns to investment to your savings is this big, do you think people understand the notion of returns to investment? No, people understand you're going to be able to buy a house in the future. How do we actually get to that level of conversation through the correct channels, through the people that might influence the behavior? And then we make sure that the system is set up in a way that the person can take their savings in a simple way to be put to use. So the implementation challenges, I mean, we ran this intervention. I always give this as an example because it was crazy. In North Macedonia, we did an intervention to get children to learn how to be grittier at school. We thought, oh, sure, we'll do this online. They're computers. No, they're computers in the schools. Computers don't work. Computers are not connected to the internet. So we had to print. Great, we print. Then all of a sudden, we were printing 3 million pages that we had to distribute to 350 schools across the country. And then we had to collect them. We had to rent a small storage unit separately to store all this paper that then we need to get an army of people to just type and collect so we know if the intervention worked. So that's working with constraints, right? I cannot make the teacher to be a better teacher. I cannot choose the teacher that I'm doing the intervention with. I cannot choose the context. I just have to cross my fingers and pray for the best and design with that. So, as you know, I was late connecting and I was late because we were going exactly through that conversation. Oh, we should call these frontline workers to make sure that they're doing things. They don't have phones. Oh, and how are we going to know? We don't know. We just hope for the best (laughs) and design for that. Interestingly, you highlight in all of that, one of the very basic foundational principles of behavioral sciences, which is that just providing information in of itself does not change behavior. And indeed, it is all about local context. It's all about situation and environment. Funny enough, you were talking, I was wondering then, when it comes to messaging and communication, how you think about using local cultural and political context to tailor your messages. Because, you know, for example, it strikes me that political landscape and culture determine the types of communication people are familiar with. And so you need to adjust accordingly, I presume. Yep, that's exactly what we have to. I mean, you take everything into consideration, how people get information. And that's why our diagnostics are so important. And we focus heavily on that. Channels, people that they trust, 
the way the message is constructed, what are their interests, the relevant motivations, their opportunities to act. And the political context, that kind of permeates the who you trust to talk to. And we learn more and more that the closer the person is to you, whether it is a local leader, whether it is your neighbor, the teacher in the school or others, the easier it is to pass a message. Sometimes actually you need an authority, you need a figure of authority to do it. But yeah, we spend a lot of time trying to think what is in this context that we can leverage. Absolutely. Let me turn to you, Zainab, just for a, a parallel opinion. Now, despite Anna Maria that you say actually implementation challenges have a certain constancy and predictability despite where you are, it seems to me nevertheless that you're dealing with some levels of complexity and pushback well beyond the sorts of behavioral science interventions that many of us are familiar with reading about in the Western literature. In other words, you know, financial inclusion and health mean very different things in New York and Haiti, for example. I wonder whether, maybe you all have a go at this question, but whether you think as practitioners that you are building superpower skill sets, both hard and soft skills, which have opened you up to even more creative lateral thinking, which gives you confidence, frankly, to take behavioral science anywhere. I mean, I think it definitely helps, given that we are all multidisciplinary and the team is, I think that definitely helps because we are able to bring in different perspectives and experiences as we are looking into a problem. So on top of it, and then I think that's one of the challenges sometimes we face in behavioral science is that at the end of the day, our priority is to ensure that the project is successful and that the project is reaching the planned outcomes. Versus doing behavior science research, you have to think more about the integrity of the design of the intervention, the RCT, and the rigor. And sometimes these two come in conflict because things are happening very fast on the ground and we have to adapt. And I think the skill sets that we bring in, having worked in operation, bank operation for a long time, understanding behavioral science really does come in as an asset. Because at the end of the day, as much as we want to be able to publish a paper, as much as you want to be able to contribute to the literature, what we really want to do, and that's our priority, is to make sure the projects on the ground are successful. And also basically ensuring that there's no harm being done when we're implementing a lot of our projects. So I think that's kind of the challenge that we face. And I think given that we are multidisciplinary, that brings in an advantage basically to the team. I would just add that we have a massive level of frustration tolerance, a great ability to fail. And we're terribly gritty because without any of those things, you cannot work in development, not even doing behavioral science in development, but development overall. And those are things that you learn by being at the bank and trying to do this. Give me a flavor of being day-to-day gritty in your role. Oh, God. You have to convince everybody. I mean, we have seven layers of people to talk to every day to think about what we do and how we do it and whether we can do it. You would not believe, like, if you want to talk about sludge, we are a pros at sludge. You're pros at sludge. Yeah. Well, let's hold that thought because I'm conscious, by the way, that we're focusing a lot on the challenges. And we will come to talking about some more examples of the great stuff that you do. And maybe sludge comes into this. But one of the wonders of behavioral science is that now and again, one can implement an intervention in a very minimalist, low-cost manner. It doesn't always take grand projects of long design and high expense. And my hypothesis, thinking of sludge was that policymakers who you deal with, likely schooled in very long-winded bureaucratic processes, probably need some educating here so that they don't you know, miss opportunities, so that actually they can take advantage of serendipity and quick wins and can actually work in a more agile manner. 
I mean, there's not a typical scenario. Like the way I was thinking of it, the listening to the three of you, like we have the uncertainty of the situational, you know, conversation with the counterpart who, as you know, Ana Maria said, have their own agenda underlying for better or worse. And I think, yes, we do have huge sludge internally and with the counterparts. But I think what ultimately is powerful with what we bring is this focus on solutions. This is something that development practitioners, in my experience, we are trained to talk about problems and the diagnosis in a way that is that stays at the diagnostic level. So maybe this is a nudge in itself in the conversation. Once you're in a meeting with Minister X or the director of the Ministry Y, and you tell them, literally, I have no idea as Renos or my team, you know, what the solution is. But I know that this is a process, this is a diagnosis we can do, but ultimately this is about bringing you three ideas and then working with you to figure out which one is feasible given the constraints that you have and given the constraints we have to actually evaluate it. And and, then the evaluation part is actually a very important part in what we bring because behavior science traditionally just like any other new thing that comes out, you know, behavior science has been around for decades, if not for hundreds of years in a way, but in policy, it's still, you know, in diapers, it's still, you know, being digested. And I think what we bring a lot of value is to bring the evaluation part for us to see what works, for our colleagues in the bank to give them some confidence that, you know, this actually does bring value added and ultimately to the counterparts because then a lot of these discussions then become more nuanced and easier to have in terms of costing, in terms of, you know, impacts. I'd love to know actually a little more about how your diagnostic process works. Can you break down for me what a typical diagnostic looks like in a project? So when we start basically working on a diagnostics, we work very closely with the bank project team that, for example, we worked with the disaster risk management team in Haiti to help them design a new operation where they're strengthening early warning systems for hurricane response and encouraging individuals basically to go to the shelters. And this has been multi-year projects funding from the bank and other donors. And they still were facing issues where people were not responding to their early warning systems or going to the shelters. So what we did is we sat down with them to better understand their perspective of the problem. And there were two, like the people not responding to the early warning systems or going to the shelters. So we did a diagnostics. First, we talked to them. We talked to the partners. We went to the field. We did talk to the different uh, individuals, whether they are the households, the families, the people who take care of the shelters the local community leaders. So we did a very thorough qualitative field research to understand why people aren't actually responding to the early warning systems. And we also looked into the system itself, like what are the different steps? And through that, again, we worked closely with the bank team, as well as we've hired local experts and we did the field work. And through that, we were able to identify the different barriers that individuals were facing when they were trying to listen to the early warning systems or go to the shelters. And what we did is once we basically finished the diagnosis, we came up with recommendations. We incorporated these solutions into the World Bank project. And that included changing the early warning system procedures, um, thinking through how to make the shelters safer. That was one of the reasons why people were not going to the shelters. Not all of them were safe. 
people felt safer in a church that would be turned as a shelter during the hurricane, but did not feel safe in schools. So how do you bring that sanctity of being in the church into the school once it's turned into a shelter? So we worked with the team and a lot of these solutions were then integrated with the project and the project and now being basically implemented. So this is kind of an example of how, you know, behavioral science can really kind of reshape and form a complete project design. It's not just also about doing behavioral intervention, but also what are the changes you do in the system to improve basically response to the early warning systems or basically increase people's going to the shelters. And we've talked about the criticality of context before. And I wonder because, you know, you've completed over 100 projects in 70 countries. Let me ask you this, Anna Maria. How translatable are your findings and actions across geographies and demographic groups thinking about this question of context? How much are you able to take with you and replicate versus having to start again in each project? So it depends. I don't think we have a single answer. So first, I do want to just want to build on what Zaina was saying. Our diagnostic methodology, which is basically asking about, if you say, I don't know, you can take, lately I've been using a lot of the combi framework, right? You can try to understand what are the motivations, the opportunities, and the capabilities that people have in order to enact something. That translates really easily from context to context as an approach to do a diagnostic, right? So basically, as Reynolds was saying, we start with a completely agnostic approach to the problem where a lot of people have a lot of views, right? Policymakers have a ton of views about how the poor behave and why the poor behave, why things happen or not happen. We go there to say, let's go and ask all these questions again. So we look at the supply side of the policy. So how is your policy designed? How is it delivered? At what times, by whom and where? And we look at the demand side. What are the steps that people need to take? What do they need to think about? What documents are you asking? That applies here, there, and everywhere. And as a first step to think about solutions, it's completely translatable. We've also done interventions. So say, for example, we've worked lately, and we we're talking about this yesterday, on social emotional skills in plenty of countries, right? Either with youth, with children, and in school settings or outside school settings. And say growth mindset intervention, this whole idea that intelligence is not fixed and that you can change it and by that you can learn. And that basically that whoever you are and whatever you can aspire to is not deterministic translates very well everywhere. Yes, you adapt the materials as you adapt the language, right? I learned that in some countries, the word projects means one thing versus others, but that translates very well. And we've shown that at least in five different countries, it gets similar results with students, with children, right? Similarly with youth. So you adapt to context, but we assume that people overall face similar constraints. I mean, as we assume that behavioral barriers, mental models and biases are somewhat universal, they just operate differently in different places. So we work both on how policies are delivered and how are designed to be effective, taking into account all these possible biases. I'm really interested in this question of sort of difference in cognitive biases say, barriers to messaging receptivity in different environments. And I sort of question maybe my own ignorance or my own biases in terms of my hypotheses. So feel very free to knock me down. I suspect what you might say to this is that actually biases have a certain uniformity wherever you are in the world. I was wondering whether there were greater cognitive biases or just different types of biases when you're working in more isolated rural communities versus larger urban environments. Have you observed anything there? I agree with your interpretation. Kind of my 
translation would be something along the lines of because context matters. So mental models will vary. You know, there's going to be gradient. So if you start bringing these localized, you know, whatever you want to call them, cues and et cetera. So yes, part of our job is to get into those details and then understand those details so we can then back up on the design side of things, how to do things, how to phrase things, how to deliver things, the timing of things and all of those things. But ultimately, there's some truisms in all the science of, you know, biases and social norms, etc. And, and I think, as Ana Maria was saying, that's our starting point. Otherwise, you know, we would be in an ironic way, I have to use the word, you know, irrational ourselves if we didn't go through some more, you know, scientific notion. The complexity of what we do, though, sometimes there are challenge is our starting point conceptually you know, it's also driven, you know, in a way causally by the counterparts and the setting. So it's not that we would always go in and say, okay, let's do a growth mindset intervention or let's do, you know, kind of a communication thing. I guess my point is that we're not aiming to find the best solution in a given problem, in a given context. We're trying to find solutions that could work in that setting. And that's very different mindset, I think, from a very economistic, optimizing point of view, because we have to work with real implementation, real politics, real legal things. You know, so many things, we have amazing solutions, but we cannot do anything because the lawyers of the ministry say, well, you cannot do this, or the ethics, you, we cannot divide and give X and Y. So given all those constraints, you know, we work through our solutions kind of backwards. And then again, the testing, it's where it really comes through because that really guides our direction. Everything that you say that reflects why I think getting insight into behavioral science in the wild is just as if not more fascinating than reading about experiments in the academic laboratory, because actually you suddenly realize you're dealing in the real messy world and things are far less linear and obvious. And with that in mind, maybe I carry on with you, Rinos, actually, because I'm interested in the subject of project sustainability and wonder how you bridge the gap between effective experimentation and taking a project to scale to a position of, say, sustained success where your continued supervision is not required. Does that require a lot of education for policymakers? How do you think about that? I think what we found over the years that is, you know, my bad jokes. I like to make the jokes like we're not a one night stand type of thing. I think behavior science has to be a repeated game and because it's about relationships and it's about trust. So we cannot, you know, Reynolds or Zane or Namir cannot show up, give a brilliant idea and disappear, right? Because everything is in the implementation ultimately. I mean, everything is kind of a how things are done because if they're done in a way that builds on the current system, that's our best chance for sustainability and scaling. So we cannot bring an academic angle to it. This is my brilliant idea. This is the cleanest way to evaluate it because my beautiful paper will be published. We have to adapt to the realities. But because we do that, then the scaling, you know, we have the best chance for scaling if it works. And if because then it's as easy as, okay, let's just do more of it in a way. And I think some of the examples that, you know, came up, I, I think that's exactly, you know, what we saw happening. Like in the growth mindset work, that our early work, you know, in, in countries like Peru had already developed easy material that were actually easy to scale once we showed results. It was easy to scale to the types of school that, you know, seemed to have more impact. But also during COVID, for example, they were easily adapted, for example, for the national TV channel that adapted curriculum to do TV sessions, like a school sessions. 
On the other side, the other project I can think of recently is it's all of our work around the vaccine hesitancy. And again, there, by embedding ourselves through our health colleagues in the ministries of health communication teams, in many ways, that guarantee that once we had some of our results where we were testing different type of communication framings for different personas that are diagnostic, you know, consistently found across 20 or 30 countries, you know, about people worried about risk of the vaccine, people, you know, having issues with trust in government and trust in pharmaceuticals, and then, you know, testing messages localized at the context of the country, because we had these results exactly to the teams that were designing communication teams, you know, that gives us the best chance for scale. And a lot of it, what usually happens when we work through the counterparts and develop these relationships, in some ways, we stay on as advisors of some sorts, you know, in the best case scenario. And as you said, slowly we're, we get fired by being asked less and less, which is kind of a sign of success for us. As a follow-on to that, but I wonder then, whether you have to be a lot more broad-minded when it comes to defining measurement and success. You know, when we started the team, my mind was only about results. Like, show me an outcome, behavior intervention, I want to show the evidence, because that in my head was kind of a proof of concept. I think these days what I also realize is the value of changing mental models of our colleagues. So a lot of, I think, what's been happening through our work is more and more colleagues in the bank, you know, are realizing that this is another tool along many others that they should be using. And I think this shift of mental models, I think this probably, ultimately, probably the, the largest impact that we could, in a way, aspire. Because clearly, you know, the 10 of us or 20 of us that we are a small team, we're not going to solve, you know, all the problems of the world. We, you know, people need to think and use some of these ideas themselves. And I think this is what I'm finding at least rewarding is to find that we are creating, I mean, it's, it's a slow process. I'm not saying 15,000 world bankers all use behavior science or even believe in behavior science necessarily, but definitely more and more the way that, you know, I understand our demand and our excess demand to help means also that there's a really nice shift in, in accepting and really trying to understand how to integrate this. Daniel, if I can also add that, like for me, the biggest takeaway when we're working with government clients and we see them starting to think more of the journey of the beneficiaries of the target groups and kind of incorporating their experiences in the design of their projects, we also see them being more open to piloting, testing, A-B testing, doing RCTs before launching programs. For me, these are kind of like the we've succeeded in kind of shifting the needle a little bit and improving how governments are basically designing and implementing projects. Because at the end of the day, even though we have been working with governments and setting up behavioral science units, you know, not every developing country today has a behavioral science unit or capacity. A lot of countries don't even have the capacity yet at the academia level. So the question is, what could be some great takeaways that the governments are starting to do differently? And one of them is, for example, the behavioral map, the journey mapping of the beneficiaries that they're trying to change, understanding more, putting them basically perspective taking and putting themselves in the position of the beneficiaries and how they're going to be experiencing whatever new service they're rolling out. And another one is being more open for testing 
piloting to be able to see what works, what doesn't work, and not take for granted what they believe the right approaches are. And I think these are for me the kind of like we've succeeded when we see governments being more open to that. Maybe they're not, you know, proficient in behavioral science and haven't learned the thousands of biases out there, but at least that they've learned the importance of taking the perspective and have the tools to be able to do, you know, like a diagnostic and a behavioral map to be able to understand the barriers that the beneficiary may be experiencing and change the design of the program versus trying to change the actual behavior of the individual. So that's another thing that I think for us would be success indicators is when we're seeing more and more governments incorporating this type of thinking into their projects. Absolutely. One of the broader trends across organizations that I'm observing or at least talking about is this sort of democratization of application of behavioral science. It doesn't necessarily require a PhD or an academic background to dive in in a similar way in which, say, design thinking has become very mainstream, for better or worse. I think clearly one requires academic rigor and to experiment in a thorough way. But the more people who we can involve and we can kind of teach and share principle with the better. And that actually brings me to a final area of, of exploration, which, I mean, Anna Maria, maybe you can start on this question of sort of diversity in the industry, because I'm interested in the question of diversity of talent and thought in behavioral science. And I wonder whether you think that there is enough diversity in your team to make sure that you are asking the right questions, finding the right answers, and steering away from answers that you like. In other words, how do we make sure, when I say we, I mean you, that we're actually addressing the problems that really matter to the populations who we don't necessarily encounter in our day-to-day lives? So the diversity question is, uh, I have to say, is a little bit of a strange question. So first of all, we are in a very diverse institution by design, right? We are a massive number of war bankers around the world with fairly diverse backgrounds that experience very diverse challenges every day. And we work with a huge diversity of counterparts and colleagues. So that kind of comes built in into the system. Of course, when you hire people, there are differences in, I mean, then people start being more similar in terms of backgrounds, right? Though we are very diverse. You're talking to the three of us. We all have a very different academic formation and background. However, we got the privilege to study in good universities and speak the right language and land a job at the World Bank. So within that is privilege. But that always sounds to me like a very sort of insular academic question because we live diversity every day and we do this by having local team members, working with local academics. We work with local stakeholders. We spend time with our counterparts and with the beneficiaries that are in the field. So it's not that I all of a sudden go to India and assume that I know everything about it or read three books and like have a superficial. No, I actually go and talk to the people that know. I know about behavioral science and I know about the topic that I want to work on. You know the context. So you're going to guide me there. And this is the first line that we tell everybody when we start a project. You know your people, you know your system. I'm working through how can we work through your system and with your people to make this project better, right? To make this outcome happen. And you need to tell me that is completely off-site. And that, again, I'm, I go back to why the diagnostic matters. For us, we spend a lot of time red teaming our projects, a ton of time. We do a lot of half-baked discussions and like have developed quite a bit of tolerance to comments and criticisms coming from different perspectives within the team, but also from outside the team. So we consult heavily. We pre-test a ton 
And we question our own assumptions every day, but we put ourselves into that position. So the bank has internal checks and balance systems where a lot of people will review your projects, even at the design stage. I mean, I have one now coming up in a bit of time. So I think that the notion of, of course, we would like more diversity of representation. Of course, we would like more people to have the same opportunities that we do. We work in the business of equity, right? And creating opportunities. I think that there is also a little bit of a fallacy, which I always apply to gender, not because you have a specific birth sex assignment or gender, you know how to do gender policy, right? You know your experience of gender, as we all know our experience as humans and behaviors and decisions. That doesn't mean that you know it for everybody. You still always have to put yourself and ask the other person, what is it for them and how is it for them? So I think that that is always an important perspective that we keep in mind constantly. So I'll give you an example because I've been working heavily on social norms, like for the past couple of years, particularly on gender. And the first answer that you get from every policymaker is this is part of our culture. This is very, very context specific. Don't don't mess up with our culture. So we go back and say, okay, let's go and talk about culture. So what matters here? What is the challenge? Is this really a norm or is this just something that happens because it happens? And what happens if it doesn't? So who are breaking these trends? Who are your path breakers? Who are your deviants, positive or negative? Now, what happens to them? So all of a sudden you realize that the idea that, I don't know, girls don't go to school is not about girls' education, it's about girls' safety and that safety is about honor. So at the end of the day, we're talking about the honor of the family. So can we create systems and processes, whether it's school buses, girls-only schools? Well, all of a sudden the social norm is not there anymore has disappeared because we actually workshopped through the problem. So I think that that is the way to go about it. And I'm very proud to say that I got a macroeconomist fully convinced that social norms are a critical thing for development and to write a report and a paper on it. So if we can get that guy on, everybody can work it. Anything's possible. I want to ask you all a final question, which perhaps you can give me 30 seconds on each. What does the future hold for Embed? What both excites you and scares you about the challenges ahead? I think for me, there is one issue globally now that we need to focus and we try to focus, which is about trust. Most of the big problems that I find are relevant to humanity, climate change, you know, wars, social cohesion, it's about trust. We are working on that. I think we can do so much more. And I think it's an important and exciting, really key area for us to keep pushing. I think for me, like the bank has around 500 new projects a year and we're a very small team. And the question is, how do we bring behavioral science so it's not just on a small number of projects? You know, you're talking about 100 projects in the span of seven, eight years. So how do we scale our capabilities and, you know, equip other bank teams and systematize basically the use of behavioral science so all of the projects are able to take advantage of what this approach can do? As you said, we've all been working for a long time at the bank. Actually, when I joined the bank, Reynolds was one of the first people I worked with in Nicaragua. We walked mountains doing Voices of the Poor, and I'm still committed to the poverty and equity goal. I mean, if we can make the world more equal and reduce the number of people that live in poverty, I'm here for the long ride. That's a lovely point to end on. And with that, then, Zaina, Ana Maria and Rinos, let me thank you all so much for being with me today. I think understanding how you go about solving these sorts of often intractable problems, building rapport and trust with multiple stakeholders, with their own different motivations, often under a backdrop of some turmoil and privation. I do genuinely salute you all for your sharp minds, your purpose, your patience, your perseverance. And I hope, you know, we can talk again one day as I sincerely love to hear more 
of your inspiring story. So thank you all again hugely. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you, Daniel. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. My sense is that this collaboration with BE Works is bringing together some of the most inspiring and thoughtful BS practitioners in the business, all contributing to the field, all determined to find creative solutions to tough problems. Now, with that in mind, next week on the show, I welcome Ada Lee, healthcare expert at BE Works, and Musumi Sanigrahi, head of commercial for innovative medicines at Fosun Pharma US. Now, alongside poverty, food and education, healthcare is absolutely at the frontier of problems behavioural science can help solve. So with Ada and Masumi, I discussed the relationship between behavioural science and the healthcare industry, expectation effects, the psychology around the end of life and their hopes for the future. I really hope you'll join me. And as ever, if you have an interest in how behavioural science is applied in real life, if you enjoyed today's chat with Zaina and the gang, and you think others would enjoy listening to these conversations, then please share the podcast with friends and on social media. And give me a five-star review wherever you listen. Your support is what makes us tick. Thank you, all the very best, and see you next time.